This message was presented at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Well, for those who are here for the first time, I want to just repeat uh, once again what I shared before. Our seminar is called The Art of End Time Preaching. And we only had six opportunities to give six of the presentations, but it's, it's actually a longer series. Um, unfortunately, we have not yet recorded it. In the next few months, we will record it on video, and it will, it will be on our website, artofpreachingseminar.com, artofpreachingseminar.com. And so uh, right now we have the audio version as well as the notes on there that you can get. But the video version will come out pretty soon, and, and uh, we look forward to, to that. Um, this seminar is actually not going to be on Audioverse. Uh, no one was here to record, and uh, we actually didn't want them to record because we're doing the short version, and we want everyone to have the long version, the, the complete version, which is, uh, is going to come out pretty soon. And so uh, keep that in mind. But if, uh, if you're interested in keeping in touch with us, our ministry is Revelation of Hope Ministries. And here's all the ways you can, you can uh, get a hold of some of our evangelistic resources. Uh, we do have a booth downstairs. You're welcome to visit us tonight. Uh, RevelationofHopeMinistries.com is our main website. We also have a website called RevelationofHopeSchool.com where you can watch for free the entire seminar, all 35 presentations in a sequential way. There's quizzes, there's handouts you can download, and it's a good way to share uh, the entire Three Angels messages with friends and family members and it's a seminar that answers every major question that people have from the Bible. Very, very thorough, and most importantly, it's Christ-centered. And then we have our photography ministry, because we believe that through creation, we become acquainted with the Creator. And uh, so you can check out some of that at our website, tajimagery.com. And then we have, of course, various social media. Check out our YouTube channel. We're constantly putting out some uh, new material that will encourage you in your faith and uh, give you an opportunity to share the gospel with friends and family members. And so we'd love to hear from you if you'd like to keep in touch. I wish I had the time to talk to each one of you and, and get to know you personally, uh, but thank God we have all of eternity we can look forward to together. Amen? Amen. Amen. But you're welcome to visit us in Hawaii anytime. If you come, we'll go swim with sharks together. <laughs> Our last presentation, somebody said no? Who says Yes. All right, we, there's the adventurous ones. Remember? <laughs> yeah, no cage. That's right. Remember the, the, what the pastor said the other day? Young people were created by God to live dangerously. <laughs> All right, a lot, a lot I can say about that, but we don't have the time. Our, our final presentation, the mechanisms of the method, we're going to talk practically about the delivery of the message. We already covered the strong, solid foundation of the theology of preaching, the definition of preaching, the purpose of preaching, the problems of preaching, the power in preaching. Now we're going to talk about the delivery. How to say it in such a way that will capture people's minds, convict their hearts, and convert their souls. And so I hope you brought, uh, uh, I hope you brought a mind that is ready to soak up like a sponge all these beautiful principles. Are you ready? <clears throat> well, we're not ready quite yet until we pray. And so please bow your heads with me as we pray. Thank you so much, Lord, for your love and your mercy. And Lord, it's been a long day. My voice is weak and my, my mind is a little bit slow. And I just pray that you'd help me, 
that you'd give me clarity of thought and speech as we share this final fourth presentation. I pray that we would get excited about the things you've given to us, principles that helps us to be more effective. So we we pray, Lord, that you'd make our mouths and our lives a sharp instrument in your hand to reap the harvest of the earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to look, we already discovered on what we're to say, the content. We made it plain that every message ought to be measured by at least eight features. Do you remember them? For those who are here, what kind of foundation, number one? Biblical foundation. Number two, what kind of focus? Christ's focus. Number three, the framework is a prophetic framework. Number four, it has to have a what kind of function? Practical function. Number five, it must have a logical flow. Number six, the friction of conviction. Number seven, a strong finish. And number eight, spirit-filled. They all start with the letter F. And so that was the content. Now we want to talk about the delivery. This is important. Why? Evangelism 168 says that the manner in which the truth is presented often has much to do in determining whether it will be accepted or rejected. You see, friends, it's important for us to remember that it's not just about what we say, but how we say it when we say it, and why we say it. You see, consider with me that many people will not accept what we are saying, not necessarily because they disagree with what we're saying, but rather because we're saying it in a way that's not winsome, attractive, or appealing. You see, friends, I believe that we, as I mentioned before, need to be biblical and beautiful. We need to be right and winsome. What we preach ought to be sound and it ought to be profound as well. The content and the container is important. Jesus was the master at this. Notice the messianic prophecy concerning how Jesus spoke words. Isaiah 50 verse 4 is talking about Christ. And it says, the Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned. That's what to say, your content. That I should know what? Oh, help me this evening. I should know what? How? That's the method. How to speak a word when? In season, that deals with the timing. And so there are three things that make up a powerful message that's on target. It's not just the content, but the method and the timing. What to say, how to say it, and when to say it. Friends, many people, they know what to say, but they're saying it the wrong way. Or they're saying it the wrong time. They start with the mark of the beast when they need to start with the authority of the Bible. Then there are others who know how to say things the right way. But they're saying the wrong thing. God wants to teach us by His Spirit, friends, not only to know what to say, but how to say it and when to say it. And what is the condition for us to experience the reality of this promise? The rest of the verse says... To speak a word in season to him that is weary, he wakens me, what? Morning by morning, he wakens mine ear to hear as the learned. Before we can know what to say, how to say it, and when to say it, we got to listen. We got to listen and be in tune with God. We got to listen and be in tune with people and their needs. And God will give us that sanctified wisdom to make, to, to present a message that's on target 
and on point. That was the experience of Jesus. It can be the experience of ours as well. Amen? Gospel Workers, page 91 says, The more closely a man walks with God, the more faultless will be his manner of address, his deportment, his attitude, and his, even his gestures. Our God is a God of order. Gospel Workers 87 says, No man should regard himself as qualified to enter into the ministry until by persevering effort he has overcome every defect in his utterance. If he attempts to speak to people without knowing how to use the talent of speech, half his influence is lost, for he has little power to hold the attention of a congregation. Whatever his calling, every person should learn to control the voice. Not just for the speakers speaking behind the pulpit. It's also for the speakers speaking at the grocery stand or the grocery line or wherever you are in your day-to-day life. It says if we don't overcome defective speech, we lose half our influence. You know what that means? That means you can double your influence by learning to speak the right way. How many of you want to double your influence? And so that's why we say, we read here in Gospel Workers 86, Students who expect to become workers in the cause of God should be trained to speak in a clear, straightforward manner. Else they will be shorn of half their influence for good. The ability to speak plainly and clearly in full, round tones is invaluable in any line of work. This qualification is, what is the word? Indispensable in those who desire to become ministers, evangelists, Bible workers, or canvassers. The truth must not be marred by being communicated through defective utterance. Friends, that's amazing. The truth that's high and holy and elevated can actually be marred by not saying it the right way. And so, Ellen has a lot to say about this. Obviously, God sees that this is very important, not just the content, but also the container. You see, we live in a postmodern, media-saturated society. Our world today is accustomed to sound bites and flashing lights, and the attention span is so short. And so we need to learn to counteract that, not by copying the customs of Hollywood and, and the theatrics of the world and emotionalism. The way in which we counteract that is by using our voice, by the tools of creative speech, writing, language, and visual communication. People are desensitized in our world today. So to counter the attack, God wants to teach us to use language in a compelling, captivating way to secure the ear of the one we're trying to reach. And so to that end, in this presentation, we're going to look at the mechanisms in the method. We're going to look at the tools of language, the tools of speech, and then number three, the tools of visual communication. But let me read just a few more statements. Counsels to Teachers 2.16. He who knows how to use the English language fluently and correctly can exert a far greater influence than one who is unable to express his thought readily and clearly. You see, a sermon or a Bible study, or whatever a witness uh, that you give, the purpose of it is to help people to see the unseen God. And the means of helping people to see he who is invisible, the means by doing that is words. Because God wants us to live by faith, not by sight, right? We walk by faith, not by sight, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the 
word of God. So the way that we help people to see God is by the means of words. With our words, we're helping people see the invisible one. They say that a picture is worth a thousand words. Words paint pictures. Now, if you look at the the word earth, God created the earth, right? The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. The earth that God created in its original perfection was a revelation of the beauty of who God is. God said when he created, it is good. Why? Because God is good. Amen? But if you look at the word earth, what word is in the word earth? You take out the E and the H and you have art. That's why I call it the art of end time preaching. Because with our words... We are, we are painting the picture of the unseen God upon the canvas of people's minds. It's really an art, friends. Art is the expression of a person's skill and, and creativity, and that's what the earth is. But friends, how did God create the earth? He created by His spoken word. And so God created us in His image. And so we're doing the same thing when we witness to others. And so, as an artist... In order to paint a beautiful picture, the artist needs to be familiar with different tools, right? Words paint pictures. There are different colors and different strokes and different brushes that do different things. Contrast and saturation and vibrancy and temperature, highlights and shadows. If a picture is worth a thousand words, then it must, make a, it must take a thousand words to paint a beautiful and accurate picture. So then let us use the art of language that we might paint the right picture, that we may not only be right, but winsome and beautiful. And so we're going to go back to high school English class for just a few moments. I hope you don't mind that. And talk about the tools of language, vocabulary and grammar. We must constantly work at increasing the accuracy and variety of our vocabulary by using the dictionary and the thesaurus. Now, what are the, what are the differences between the dictionary and thesaurus? The dictionary gives you the accuracy in using words. You find the definition of words, make sure you're using words right. But I love the thesaurus. The thesaurus gives you a variety of saying the same thing in different ways to reach different minds. It gives you the synonyms of words. Dictionary gives you the definition. The thesaurus gives you synonyms. A variety of ways to say the same thing in the in different ways to appeal to different minds. And so when you expand your vocabulary, you are able to say more with less. How? By using more potent words. It makes the message more potent, powerful, clear, concise, and compelling. And so vocabulary words should increase. Filler words should decrease. That's the basic thing with vocabulary. What about grammar? We must make sure that we use correct sentence structures. What are the different types of words and their functions? There are nouns that name, right? Person, place, or thing. Those are nouns. Pronouns that personalize the nouns. He, she, they, we, us. Then there are conjunctions that connect and alter the pace of what you're saying. Then there are verbs that act, action words, like seek, love, cleanse. But then there are adverbs. What is an adverb? An adverb clarifies 
the intensity of the verb. You're adding to the verb. It's an adverb. And so an example, God seeks. Seek is the verb. But here's the adverb we add, relentlessly. How does God seek? Relentlessly. It gives more color to the picture you're seeking to paint. God loves extravagantly. Extravagantly is the adverb that adds to the verb of love. God cleanses us from sin thoroughly. That's the adverb. And then you have adjectives that describe. He gazed into the pensive face of Jesus. Pensive is the adjective describing. You're helping people to see the face of Jesus. What does it look like? It's pensive. The cold, rusty nails pierced the hands of the Lord. You want people to see and even feel the nails So you give that adjective. But verbs can also be adjectives. Like the majestic mountains, the peaceful river, the swaying forests, the dancing flowers, the clapping waterfalls. It's important for us to understand the different words, the different uses of of, of language so that we can use them correctly. And so the things that I found very helpful to focus on are adverbs and adjectives. Those are the, those are the, Uh, Parts of language that really add intensity to the picture you're painting with your words. Now, there are other creative tools of language that God has given for us to utilize. And we see this over and over again in the Bible, in the spirit of prophecy. So I want to share some of them with you. One that I really like is alliteration. What is alliteration? Alliteration is the repetition of the same letter or sound at the beginning of words occurring relatively close together. Alliteration. Now, friends, before we get into this, or before we move on, let me just remind us that we're, we're looking at these things in light of everything we've already said in previous presentations. Right? The main thing that we, we covered was the previous, in the pre- previous presentations is the content. That's the, most, the object that we're trying to magnify. But these are simply additional things we can do to grab the attention. So alliteration, glimpses of grace, pictures of peace. Today, as we look into the Bible, we're going to see sightings of salvation, describing Jesus, the King of kindness, the man of mercy, the Prince of peace, the Lord of love, the God of grace. That's alliteration. Now you can say those things just straight up, but when you use alliteration, doesn't it just grab your attention? It helps you to remember as well. The darkness of the devil's deceptions in the last days, the the D, the D, the D, emphasized over and over again. God's ability is our availability. Now, we can just say that when you make yourself available to God, he will give you power. You can say it like that. I don't know, it sounds a little bit nicer, and it's a little bit easier to remember when you say God's ability is our availability. That's just a creative tool of language. If you want to grow, you got to go, so people will know. Then there's another tool of language as you're writing your sermon, and this is where you write, when you're writing the manuscript, you can become creative like this. A word called paranomasia. Paranomasia is basically setting in close proximity to each other words that are similar in sound and using words with dual meanings. Paranomasia, it's a play on words. The Bible uses this. Here's an example, a biblical example. 
In Ezekiel chapter 9, it talks about those who receive God's mark in their foreheads that will endure the desolation. And the Bible says that those who receive the mark of God are those who sigh and cry. That's paranomasia. Words that sound similar. You can call it rhyming, but I prefer the word paranomasia. (laughs) You heard me say it. Information without application results in condemnation. Now, you can say the more you know, the more God holds you accountable to. And if you don't follow it, the more that information will condemn you in the judgment. But that was a lot of words to use. I can say that more simply by saying information without application results in condemnation. Because to whom much is given, much is required. That's paranomasia. The power of the tower. The message of the master. The belly of the beast. That's an example of paranomasia. How about this one? Demonstration must come before proclamation in order for there to be transformation and illumination in preparation for glorification at the consummation of the controversy. (laughs) We cannot lose when Jesus we choose. We got no reason to hide when Jesus is at our side. We We need not fear when Jesus is near. Amen. That's paranomasia. You can say those things differently, but... People tend to remember it more when you utilize this creative tool of language. And then you have another tool, personification. Personification is basically (coughs) projecting human life into abstractions. Speaking of things as persons or attributing intelligence to inanimate objects or abstract ideas. That's the creative tool of personification. The Bible has this over and over again, friends. This is not just some, some fancy uh, 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 you know, rhetoric. It's actually biblical. Here's personification in the Bible. Mercy and truth kiss. What does that mean? In order for you to kiss, you have to have lips, right? That's a human, that's a human characteristics. But you're adding a human Projecting human life into something that's not human, that's personification. And mercy and justice, kissing, that simply means that God's mercy and God's justice are not in disagreement. They're one. They're in agreement with each other. Uh, Another example, does not wisdom cry out, the book of Proverbs says, and understanding lift up her voice? You have to have a mouth in order to have a voice. But personification is applying understanding as one that's crying out, longing to be heard by others. Jesus looked upon the angry storm and the raging waves and he cried out, peace, be still. One of my favorites is this one in the book, Desire of Ages. Page 689, this is personification at its best. Ellen White is actually describing the sufferings of Christ from the perspective of the trees in the garden. Again, the Son of God was seized with superhuman agony. And fainting and exhausted, he staggered back to the place of his former struggle. His suffering was even greater than before. The cypress and palm trees were the silent witnesses of his anguish. And from their leafy branches dropped heavy dew upon his stricken form as if nature wept over its author wrestling alone 
with the powers of darkness. Amazing. While the disciples were sleeping on him, and no one was crying for him, inanimate nature was, as it were, weeping over the Creator. That's personification. It paints the picture more clearly in the minds of people. And then there's another tool, creative tool of language, anaphora. Anaphora is basically the repetition of a word or phrase at the beginning of successive clauses in the sentence. And so here's an example. Soon and very soon. We're going to see the sky split open. Soon and very soon. That trumpet will blast. Soon and very soon. Graves are going to burst open. Soon and very soon. We're going to see our loved ones again. Soon and very soon. We're going to receive a brand new body. Soon and very soon, friends, we will see the beautiful face of Jesus. Soon and very soon, Jesus is coming again. Anaphora. What was I repeating? Soon and very soon. That's just a creative tool of language. Then there's the metaphor. A lot of, a lot of examples I'd love to give, but we're going to continue on because our time is running out. The metaphor is a figure of speech where a word or phrase depicting one object is attributed action that would fit another object. That's the metaphor. So an example of this, drowning in discouragement and despair. What do you drown in? Water. But you're depicting discouragement and despair as water that suffocates your life. That's the metaphor. Pierced with arrows of conviction. Pounded by waves of pain. It helps you to feel the pain, especially if you're a surfer and been pounded by a wave. Saturated with sorrow and sadness. There's alliteration and the metaphor put together. You can take these tools and put them together. Just like a rat wrapped up in the deadly embrace of a snake was me held by the addictions of my life. Can you see it? Can you see the helplessness of the rat? A reflection of the helplessness of humanity without Jesus. As water to the thirsty, so is Jesus to the empty. As light is to the night, so is Christ is to my life. That's the metaphor, friends. Use it. And there's, then there's this other tool that I really like, contrast. Contrast is basically calling people's attention or highlighting noticeable differences between two things. So here's an example. Jesus was forsaken that we might be forgiven. He was rejected that we might be accepted. Christ was cut off that we might be reconciled to God. He wore the crown of thorns that we might wear the crown of life. He walked the way of suffering that we might walk on streets of gold. He was nailed to the cross so that we can sit upon his throne of glory. That's contrast. Two things that are distinct and separate. Saying them close together. The light of glory penetrated the darkness of the grave. The darker the night, the brighter the light. The contrast. And so you can start to put these tools together and become very creative. Here's an example of alliteration, paranomasia, anaphora, and contrast all together. Are you ready? 
talking about the justice and mercy of God. Having a sermon that, I have a sermon that helps people to see that, that those two things are together. And, I, and so as I explained, I say that the justice and mercy of God, it's bold, but it's not cold. It's loud, but it's not proud. It's strong, but it's not wrong. It's meek, but not weak. It's attractive, but not reactive. It's, it's convinc- convicting, but not afflicting. Comforting, but not compromising. It is right, but it does not slight. It's humble, but it will not crumble. It's loud in the mouth and meek in the feet. It's the bold roar of the lion and the humble walk of the Lamb. That's contrast, alliteration, paranomasia, and aphora all put together. And so I want to encourage you folks, be creative. Amen? You're an artist. And with your spoken word, you're helping people see the unseen God. You're grabbing their attention and you're helping them to remember the points that you're seeking to make. I like what Charles Spurgeon, that famous preacher, said He said, manner is not everything. Of course, remember what we're studying right now. Keep it in the context of everything we just presented in the last five presentations. Manner is not everything. The content is the most important. And the spirit that we have when we say it is the most important. However, it says, still, if you've you've gathered good material, it's a pity to convey it mainly. Then he says, royal truths should ride in a chariot of gold. Amen? Amen? So it's not just the content but the container as well. Here's what Spirit of Prophecy says concerning it. Counselors to Teachers 2.16 says, one of the most essential qualifications of a teacher is the ability to speak and read distinctly and forcibly. He who knows how to use the English language fluently and correctly can exert a greater, far greater influence than one who is unable to express his thought readily and clearly. Voice culture should be taught in the reading class. And in other classes, the teacher should insist that the students speak distinctly and use words which express their thoughts clearly and forcibly. Students should be taught to use their abdominal muscles in breathing and speaking. Thus, this will make the tones more what? Full and clear. So remember, friends, it's not just what you say, but how you say it. Is This is not just a bunch of empty, fancy rhetoric, friends. This is the equipment, the tools that God has given to us to say far more with less words. The art of communicating in such a way that our message becomes practical, tangible, memorable, and wonderful. And so once we've written it, using these tools, now we got to say it. How do we say it? Christian Leadership, page 73 says, The Lord calls for minutemen, men who will be prepared to speak words in season and out of season that will arrest the attention and convict the heart. Evangelism 174, however great a man's knowledge, it is of no avail unless he is able to communicate it to others. Let the pathos of your voice, its deep feeling, make its impression on hearts. Urge your students to surrender themselves to God. So again, not just what you say, but how you say it. We've been told by psychologists, that communication is far more than the words we speak. In fact, they say that 55% of communication is body language. They also say that 38% is the tone of your voice. And actually only 7% are the words that we speak. So yes, the words we speak are important. But let's not neglect the intonation as well as body language. Effective communication is far more than how we, far more how we say in situations than what we're actually saying. 
And so now let's take a look at some creative tools of speech. We looked at creative tools of writing and language. Now creative tools of speech. We have the tool of inflection and intonation. What is this? What is inflection and intonation? By the way, this part of speech influences the feelings behind the words we're speaking. So inflection and intonation is the raising and the lowering of the voice in such a way to draw attention to the thought content, particularly the connotation and the emotion that words are trying to portray. The emotion of the intonation must match the message of the words that we're actually saying. Does that make sense? It helps you to feel what's being said. Ellen White talks about it. Gospel Workers 89. When you speak, let every word be full and well-rounded. Every sentence clear and distinct to the very last word. Many as they approach the end of a sentence, lower the tone of their voice, speaking so indistinctly that the force of the thought is destroyed. Words that are worth speaking at all are worth speaking in a clear, distinct voice with emphasis and expression. It's amazing, isn't it? Sometimes we think to ourselves, all we have to do is just give the message and it's good enough. But friends, the Spirit of God has shown us so many other things that helps us to be more effective. It says in the book, Counsels to Teachers, page 217, the more expression... We can put into the words of truth, the more what? Effective these words will be on those who hear. And that, my friends, is intonation and inflection. Here's a few others before we break this down practically. Evangelism 668 says, The voice should be cultivated so as to promote its musical quality. And friends, if you, good music, it doesn't have the same note, right? A song that has the same note all the way through is not really music. Music is not monotonous. Unfortunately, many sermons are, though. And so we should cultivate the voice to have a musical quality that it may fall pleasantly upon the ear and impress the heart. Again, friends, this is not just a bunch of empty, fancy rhetoric. It is basically injecting the feeling and the emotion that are already in inherent In the words that we speak, and friends, there are four things that influence intonation and inflection. Four things. How many? Maybe more, surely not less. Inflection and intonation is changed and influenced by pitch, pace, volume, and tone. What is the pitch? Pitch is the raising and the lowering of the voice. Raising, lowering. What does that communicate when you do that? Climax. Tension in the words you're speaking. The pace is the speed of your speech. So if you, if you talk fast, it communicates without you actually saying it. It communicates a sense of urgency. If you talk a little bit slower, it communicates solemnity. Right? That's the pace. Then you have the volume, which is the loudness or the softness of the sound. That also influences the intensity or the solemnity of what you're saying. Then the tone of your voice. The tone is basically the sound emotion of your words. It's the feeling. 
So, how does this look like practically? For an example, if we talk about the second coming of Christ, what kind of event is that? What kind of feelings are, 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 do you get when you talk about the second coming? It's exciting, right? It's also solemn, but it's exciting. It's the climax. And so when I talk about the second coming of Christ, I, I, I perhaps make my voice a little bit louder. I speak a little bit faster. I talk about the, the, the second coming of Christ when the Bible says that every eye will see Him and every ear will hear Him when Jesus comes with all the angels of heaven and He gives that trumpet a blast and He speaks. Those who are sleeping in the graves are going to wake up and they're going to burst open from the tomb and they're going to resurrect to see Jesus in the air. And we who are alive and remain living in the last days will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. I can't wait for that day. How about you? But then if we talk about actually seeing Jesus in heaven, the solemn experience of looking into the face of your Creator. And as you look into the pensive, beautiful face of Jesus, He looks into your eyes and He places that golden crown on your brow. And He says to you, well done, thou good. And faithful servant. Not well said. Well done. The good and faithful servant. Oh, don't you want to look into the face of your creator? Don't you want to hear those words? Jesus will speak it to you as you continue to trust in him. Amen? So I get a little bit slower. I soften my voice. It's a more solemn experience. That's inflection and intonation. Jesus was a master of this, friends. Jesus did this. Let's follow his example. Desire of Ages 254 says, His tender compassion fell with the touch of healing upon weary and troubled hearts. Even amid the turbulence of angry enemies, he was surrounded with an atmosphere of peace. The beauty of his countenance, the loveliness of his character, above all, the love expressed how? In look and tone drew to him all who were not hardened in unbelief. He was expressing love even in the intonation of his voice and the look upon his countenance. I want to be like Jesus. How about you? Amen. Another tool of language is enunciation. Enunciation is more, it's different from pronunciation. Pronunciation is saying words correctly as, as far as, enunciate, let me just read it. Enunciation is the inflector stress on the continents, the syllables of words to give the word more power, clarity, and emphasis. So you not only want to pronounce words correctly, you want to enunciate it correctly. Enunciating every syllable with power, clarity, and, and what this does, it, it, it gives emphasis in what you're saying. You're able to emphasize your point just by how you say it. And in the book Evangelism, it says this, 175, by earnest prayer and diligent effort, we are to obtain a fitness for speaking. This fitness includes uttering every what? Syllable clearly. Placing the force and emphasis where it belongs. I think that's talking about enunciation, don't you? Saying the syllables, the consonants clearly. And when you do that, you're able to emphasize your point without saying more words. 
And then it says here in Council of Teachers, let everyone connected with missionary work qualify himself to speak in a clear, attractive way. How? Enunciating his words perfectly. One more. Testimonies, Volume 6, 383. When you speak, let every word be full and well-rounded. Every sentence clear and distinct to the very last word. So what enunciation does is this, friends. Enunciation... It breaks up the monotony of speech and it provides a way to emphasize important points and highlight critical features of your content without using more words to do it. So make sure you enunciate good. And then there's another tool of speech, which we call the pause. This allows the speaker time for audience participation and reflection. It's pausing to take, take in a moment to let a statement sink into the minds of the hearers, thus bringing conviction to their hearts. Pausing as you preach creates silence that grabs the attention of the people who are not really listening. So you're, you're speaking and, and someone's just hearing words and all of a sudden, all of a sudden as you're speaking and speaking, all of a sudden you stop speaking. And people are not listening are like, what happened? <laughs> That's the pause. <laughs> But more than that, more than just grabbing attention of those who are not listening, it's giving people some time, giving the Holy Spirit some time to let a statement you said sink in. Especially after a punchline or a very potent point, you want to pause. So I had an experience in, in Lebanon. I was preaching and there was, a, there, there was a, a young lady that was a Muslim, coming from a Muslim uh, uh, country. And I made an evangelistic appeal for people to come accepting Jesus in baptism. And many people came forward, but that young lady was struggling. I could tell she was sitting in the back and, and she, she wouldn't move until the last ending of my appeal. I saw her stand up and she ran to the front making a decision for Jesus. Now you have to understand, friends, that her decision for Christ was more than a decision for Christ. For in making that decision, it was also a decision to die. Because if her family finds out, they would kill her. That decision for Jesus was like a decision of, of perhaps laying down her life, never seeing her family again. And it was amazing to think that that young lady would not allow even death to stand between her and Jesus. And my question to you is this, friends, what are you allowing to stand between you and Jesus? Pause. Let that statement sink in. In that time of silence, the Holy Spirit works to drive it into the hearts of people. Amen? Gospel Workers 168 says, There is a danger of passing too rapidly from point to point. Speak slowly. Many speak rapidly. Hurrying one word after another so fast that the effect of what they say is lost. What's the implication in that? Pause. Evangelism 670. Then Christ was presented before me and his manner of talking and there was a sweet melody in his voice. His voice in a slow, calm manner reached those who listened. And his words penetrated their hearts. And they were able to catch on to what he said before the next sentence was spoken. What's the implication in that? He was pausing. They knew what he was going to say before he even said it. And then notice, I love what, what she says here. It continues, same quote. Some, theme, some seem to think that they must race right straight along 
or else they will lose the inspiration. And the people will lose the inspiration. If that is inspiration, let them lose it, and the sooner the better. I like that. So pause. Oh, man, I wish we had more time. Our time is... Oh, actually, what time are we supposed to finish? 45? 45. Oh, we got 15 minutes. Praise the Lord. Enthusiasm is another tool of speech. I was pausing too much. Is that what it was? <laughs> the word enthusiasm. We know what enthusiasm is. But if you look at this, the root word of the word enthusiasm comes from the Greek word enthos, which means... Inspired by God. God breathed. In other words, true enthusiasm cannot be manufactured in and of ourselves. It must come from the inspiration of God. Amen? In the book Education 233, there's an interesting quote talking about the power of enthusiasm. Here's what it says. An important element in educational work is enthusiasm. On this point, there's a useful suggestion in a remark made by a celebrated actor. So Ellen White is about to quote what an actor said. Why actors in a play affect their audience so powerfully by speaking of things imaginary, while ministers of the gospel often affect theirs so little by speaking of things real? So the question was asked, why do you, you say stuff that's, not, that's imaginary, and, and man, you're able to affect your audience so well, and we're talking about things that are real, and and people are not listening. What's the problem? Here's what the actor said. The reason is plain. It lies in the power of enthusiasm. We on the stage, the actor said, speak of things imaginary as if they were real. And you in the pulpit speak of things real as if they were imaginary. The teacher in his work is called, excuse me, in his work is dealing with things real. And he should speak of them with all the force and enthusiasm which a knowledge of their reality and importance can inspire. So we're not faking it, friends. We're not trying to be enthusiastic. We are naturally enthusiastic. How? By the knowledge of the reality and the importance of the message that we bear. It's inspired by God. Friends, we are recipients of the gospel. And what does the word gospel mean? It doesn't mean bad news or scary news or doom and gloom. It means good news. And friends, news by its very nature is to be communicated. And if the news is good, it ought to be communicated with holy joy and enthusiasm and zeal and with the power of God. Amen? We must remember these tools. Use them and use them well. I encourage you to go to the book of Evangelism. She has a whole section talking about how we say words. I extracted some of the the quotations I really appreciated, but you look it up, man, there's so much she says about it. But we must remember that only a small percentage of communication is speech. Visual communication is also vital to keep the attention of the people. So what can we do to communicate visually? Is it okay to use visual aids? Of course. It says in Gospel Workers 355, by the use of charts, symbols, and representations of various kinds, the minister can make the truth stand out clearly and distinctly. This is a help and in harmony with the Word of God. Some people are so, you know, stuck in ways and they're against, you know, slides and against visual illustration. They say, just, just speak from the Word. And friends, yes, we can speak from the Word, of course, but 
nothing wrong with using things to help people see what you're trying to say. Images are innocent as long as we do not revere or worship them. The second commandment isn't against the making of images, but rather the making and worshiping of those images or reverencing those images. You look at the sanctuary, it was a visual aid, friends. And in the sanctuary, there were pictures of angels on the veil. Not only that, but at the Ark of the Covenant, there was a golden image of angels right there at the throne of God. So, friends, nothing wrong with images as long as they're not used to revere or worship. The whole system of the sanctuary was a visual aid to teach man about the plan of salvation. God even employed the symbol of the serpent to illustrate himself. Remember that? Make a bronze serpent, put it, on, put it on the pole. It was a symbol of Jesus who would be lifted up on the cross and all those who would look at him would be saved from the poisonous bites of the devil. Jesus often used parables to illustrate God, the sower, the shepherd, the serpent. This, my friends, is how you contextualize without compromise. Now, people can take this to the extreme. So, yes, we need to contextualize, but not compromise. Some people are contextualizing by compromising. We contextualize without compromise. And so here are some tidbits on visual aids. Number one, avoid the cheesy, the cheap, and the frivolous. Avoid low-resolution pictures in your slides. That's a terrible thing when you lose a low-resolution picture. Avoid clutter and disorder. You know, there's some people who have these slides that are so old and they look like cartoons. And, and then there are some people who have slides where it's just full of words and you can barely see them. Avoid that. Number four, leave some space. Less is more. Right? You want to have some, you want to have, what is this called, Tommy, the size, the, the safety, right? The, 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 the space on the side so that the margin, right? You want to leave some space. Very important. Less is more. What else? Some Practical tidbits. Use simple fonts that can be easily read. Don't get so crazy with the fonts. And it's best not to have more than two fonts on one screen. Simple is better. Number six, utilize visuals that are sharp, clear, and clean. Number seven, keep the principle of modesty in mind. Those are just some practical tidbits on the use of visual aids, right? The message we bear is high, holy, and elevated in nature. Therefore, what we use to illustrate it ought to be excellent. Amen? It ought to be the very best, professional, and modest. Now, there's another way that we can communicate visually that Ellen White talks about. That's the way we dress. Notice what it says here. Our words, our actions, our deportment, our dress, everything should preach. Not only with our words should we speak to the people, but everything pertaining to our person should be a sermon to them, that right impressions may be made upon them. The very dress will be a recommendation of the truth to unbelievers. It will be a sermon in itself. A minister who is negligent in his apparel often wounds those of good taste and refined sensibilities. Those who are faulty in this respect should correct their errors and be more circumspect. The loss of some souls at last will be traced to the untidiness of the minister. Wow. That's amazing. The first, the first appearance affected the people unfavorably because they could not in any way link his appearance with the truth that he presented. 
His dress was against him. Ministers sometimes stand in the desk with their hair in disorder, looking as if it had, not, it had been untouched by a comb or a brush for a week. <laughs> Do you know she said that? It's amazing. <laughs> like that, Grace? God is dishonored when those who engage in his serv- sacred service are so neglectful of their appearance. So we need to dress in such a way. Now, there, there's no, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to wear. But here's the principles. We don't live by our lives by rules. That's what Pharisees do. We live our lives by principles. Principles sometimes are applied differently according to the context. But here are the principles. We must dress in such a way where we are communicating professionalism, respect, modesty, and importance in whatever culture we are speaking in. Each culture is different, however. For most cultures around the world, the suit is the standard of professionalism, modesty, and importance. But let me tell you, friends, when you go to Hawaii, you wear the aloha shirt. That's the equivalent to a suit in Hawaii. In, in the Philippines, I wear the beautiful Filipino barong made of the pineapple and plant fibers. That's the suit in the Philippines. That's the best thing that communicates professionalism, respect, and modesty. In Indonesia, I wear the bold batik with the creative, colorful patterns in the shirt. That's what I do when I go to Indonesia. In the kingdom of Tonga, I wear the tupenu wrapped with the royal tauvala. That's what I wear when I preach in Tonga. (laughs) You got to be secure in Jesus to wear that. (laughs) But that's what the kings wear. You know, Tonga is the, the only uh, true kingdom in the South Pacific. And that's what the royalty wear. So I want to dress the very best. In Fiji, it's the Sulu, similar to the Tupenu. It's the Sulu with the suit top and sandals, a lot more comfortable than shoes. That's how you dress in Fiji. In Samoa, it's the Iofai Kanga. In the, in the African plains of Maasai land, I want to dress like the Maasai warriors with a beautiful shuka, illustrating the righteousness of Christ. By, by a campsite, by, by the campfire in Norway, casual and comfortable. Week of prayer at Andrews University, casual and formal. But then when I was in Bermuda, any of you here from Bermuda? I know there's some Bermudians here at, at, at GYC. Oh, they're not here this. But in Bermuda, you know what, you know what the most, the, the best dress in Bermuda? It's the Bermuda shorts. They're made of linen, and they say that the best one is the pink one. And so in Bermuda, <laughs> that's what they do, friends. They get the navy socks. The navy sock has to go right below the knee, and the Bermuda shorts right above the knee. And friends, when I went there, the president of Bermuda, that's what he was wearing. Wow. I didn't have the courage to wear that every night. I just did it the last night. <laughs> <clears throat> My friends, <laughs> here's, here's the basic point. Avoid overdressing so as to be so high that people can't relate. 
and avoid under, underdressing so as to be so low that people are not going to take you seriously. Amen. Remember the principles is professionalism, respect, modesty, and importance. And that sometimes looks different in different cultures. So don't be a Pharisee and prescribe one way of dress all over the world. Ask the Lord for wisdom according to the biblical principles he's given to us. Amen. Here's another thing we can do to, vi- to communicate visually, the way we pray. It says, according to the light that has been given me, it would be pleasing to God for ministers to bow down as soon as they step into the pulpit and solemnly ask, God, ha- ask help from God. What impression would that make? There would be a solemnity and all upon the people. It continues, the minister is communi- communing with God. He's committing himself to God before he dares to stand before the people. Solemnity rests upon the people, and angels of God are brought very near. Ministers should look to God the first thing as they come into the desk, thus saying to all, God is the source of my strength. Amen? Now, I don't believe that kneeling is an absolute mandate that must be followed every single time. The basic principle is this. We must maintain a posture of humility and reverence As we stand before the people, it would be well for us to heed the words of God to Moses. Take off your shoes. The place you stand is holy ground. Then there we communicate through body language. I don't have lots to say about body language except these tidbits. Tidbits on body language. Your gestures should be natural. Don't try to act, right? When you make a, a motion, it should come naturally. Eye contact should be consistent. You ought to make eye contact consistently with your people. Uh, Number three, your posture should be proper. Your poise should be profound. Your movements must have a purpose. In other words, don't walk back and forth on the stage like a lion in a cage. (laughs) You have to have purpose in your movements. Number six, remember that acting belongs in Hollywood, not in the church. Amen? Amen? And then, one last thing before we close, the best communication is two-way, right? Preaching should not be monologue, it ought to be dialogue between the parishioner in the pew and the preacher behind the pulpit. Why? Because expression deepens impression. And so, we need to learn to engage the people that we are communicating with and invite them to join us in the sermon by saying amen and agreeing with what we're saying and expressing the conviction of their hearts. It says here in Testimonies, Volume 5, page 318, the Lord would have his ministers who preach the word energized by his Holy Spirit. And the people who hear should not sit in drowsy indifference or stare vacantly about, making no responses to what is said. Amen? These dull, careless, professed Christians are not destitute of ambition and zeal when engaged in worldly business. But things of eternal importance do not move them deeply. The spirit of the world has paralyzed them. There should be wide awake, active churches to encourage and uphold the minister of Christ and to aid them in the work of saving souls. Where the church of God is walking in the light, there will ever be cheerful, hearty, what? Responses and words of joyful praise. Some churches are better at this than others. But this is referring to audience participation. The congregation participating. And so how as a speaker do you involve the audience? Well, here are some things you can do, especially for a quiet crowd. Number one, 
ask questions and pause for them to give the answer. Does that make sense? Does it make sense? All right. (laughs) You can invite people who are, you know, some cultures are naturally quiet, but you can invite them to read the text with you. If you have it on the screen, it's helpful. Let's read this together, shall we? And we all read together. Or you can start a verse and invite people to finish the verse with you out loud. The Bible says in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world. Let's finish it together, shall we? That He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but shall have everlasting life. Inviting them to finish the text with you. Number four, suggest for people to say amen. Amen? But don't constantly do it over and over again. You can do that every now and then, but don't constantly do it over and over again because people ought to say it naturally from their hearts. But nothing wrong with suggesting them to say amen because the word amen simply means I agree. I affirm, yes, I want that in my life. Amen. Don't you want it in your life? Amen. Amen. (laughs) Number five, ask the congregation for help. You're preaching your heart out, but you're not sure if, 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 the, if, if the seed is falling on good soil. You're not sure if they're getting it. And so you just have to ask them, are you with me? Amen. If they don't say anything, say, are you with me? Yes or no? Yes. Are you with me? Yes or no? <laughs> didn't work that time. <laughs> and so give them options of how to respond if they're not responding. Then number six. You're speaking, and every now and then, if you're not sure if the audience is with you, every now and then, pause and just, and just look. Pause and give the thoughtful look, and they'll know that, that, that you're, it'll grab their attention, right? Number seven, make many appeals. Throughout the sermon, you have the big appeal at the end, the big decision, but throughout the message, you're, you're doing many altar calls, you, after your first point, you're, you're, you're recapping that first point and you're saying, don't you, I, I want more of this in my life. How about you? How many of you agree that this is something we need? And you do that throughout the message and, and they're accustomed to saying yes and yes and yes to the many altar calls. And then by the time the big one comes at the end, because they're accustomed to saying yes, they're ready to say yes at the end as well. Number eight, engage people in all locations of the church. Don't just talk to the people in the front row. Talk to the, pe- the choir behind you and the people in the balcony and engage people in every area of the church. These, my friends, are tools of language, speech, and visual communication. God has gifted them to us for our success. So I urge you, friends, to learn them and use them and use them well. But remember in light of, remember all these things in light of this closing quotation. From the book, the Bible commentary, Ellen White writes, It is not the ready speaker, the sharp intellect that counts with God. It is the earnest purpose, the deep piety, the love of truth, the fear of God that has a telling influence. A testimony from the where? Heart. Coming from lips in which is no guile, full of faith and humble trust, though given by a stammering tongue, is accounted of God as precious as gold. So don't be discouraged if you can't do all of the, if you don't, if you don't know how to use these tools. As long as you have the heart that's right with God and you're speaking sincerely from that experience, even though you may not sound right and you may use wrong words and the language is, 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 is uncomely, 
God looks at that. He sees the heart. He accounts it as gold. The eloquent oratory of the one to whom is entrusted large talents, but who is wanting in truthfulness and steadfast purpose in purity and and unselfishness are as a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. He may say witty things. He may relate amusing anecdotes. He may play upon the feelings, but the spirit of Jesus is not in it. All these things may please unsanctified hearts, but God holds in his hands the balances that weigh the words, the spirit, the sincerity, the devotion, and he pronounces it altogether lighter than vanity. And so it's important for us to know these tools, but it's most important for us to remember it's the condition of the heart that's more important than the words that are spoken. Amen? Amen. And so... Our goal, our our desire is to have the experience of Paul. And my speech and preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and power. How many of you want that experience? One last thing before we close. In the Bible, we find a compliment that I believe is the greatest compliment that can ever be said of a speaker or a preacher. It was a compliment given to John the Baptist where the Bible says this concerning John. And I pray that these words that were spoken of of John may be said of us as well. Here's the greatest compliment someone can ever give you after you speak. And the two disciples heard him speak. And they followed Jesus. Let it be said of you. When they heard you speak, They didn't follow you. They followed Jesus. That's the greatest compliment. When they heard us speak, they followed Jesus. Amen. I hope this was helpful. There's lots more we can say. Once again, we encourage you to to study this for yourself. Internalize it. Assimilate it into your ministry. And you will double your influence. And by God's grace, we can increase the population of heaven. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, We're going to close with prayer. Why Why don't we bow our heads as we pray. Thank you so much, dear God, for giving us not only the content of what to say, but for giving us the principles of how to say things in such a way that will arrest the attention Convince the mind, convict the heart, and convert the life. Lord, I pray that you would do that for us first. That we would experience a thorough conversion. That we would know you so that we might make you known to others. Lord, we thank you so much that you're God that understands. We have people in our lives that we love that we're we can't imagine heaven without. And sometimes, we, no matter what we say, they don't listen. And our hearts are heavy because of it. Lord, please teach us how to speak. But first, teach us how to live. And I pray, dear Lord, that the demonstration of the gospel in our lives will empower the proclamation of the gospel on our lips. Use us, dear God, that we might change someone's eternal destiny 
and that it might be said of us that when they heard us, they followed Jesus. This is our prayer, and we ask this in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.